David Crow, and this is episode 249 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, crow with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm or subscribe to the podcast. You can listen to any of the last five episodes by dialing 701-719-0990. You can also leave voicemail for the show at 862-800-6805. Remember that long-distance charges may apply. I don't know that you're a listener until I hear from you, and boy, have I been hearing from you. Send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from my listeners, so don't be shy. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com or monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com as Infectious Myth, one word. And thanks for generous donations from Lynn, Elizabeth, Robert, Jorge, John, Mindy, Faz, and Nicholas. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending the show to your friends. David Rasnick has a PhD in chemistry, is an expert in drug development, including protease inhibitors, and was responsible for synthesizing the first peptidyl fluoromethanes. He was a member of the Presidential AIDS Advisory Panel of South Africa around the year 2000. He worked with Peter Duisberg at UC Berkeley on the aneuploidy theory of cancer. He's been a critic of the HIV-AIDS dogma for a long time. He invented date analysis, the first quantitative theory of biological change, and he's currently working on a book on cancer. Welcome back to the infectious myth, David Rasnick, or to avoid confusion, we're going to call each other Raz and Crow. Hey, Crow, it's good to be with you again. <laughs> yes, and, and I have to apologize because this is our second take on this interview because we had audio problems on the, um, the first one. So today we're going to talk about the coronavirus, uh, or at least that's the main topic. So give us your assessment uh, on what appears to be a global panic and, and how rational is our fear of this uh, invasion from China. Okay, uh, it's been a couple of days since we did take one, and lots of things have happened since then. <laughs> it's a fast-moving target. It certainly is. But I want to begin on a personal note, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> My mother's 93 years old. Yeah. She grew up during the Depression and lived through World War II. Right. And she's, she's on the verge of witnessing an even greater catastrophe. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Yes. Yeah, what the fear of... Uh, a simple cold virus is doing to people here in Greensboro, probably the same across the country, reminds me of uh, Nazi Germany prior to World War II. The Germans passively accepted progressive enslavement till it was too late. Mm -hmm. The Nazis wanted to pretty much rule the same regions of the world that Rome did previously. Right. The unquestioned acceptance of a viral pandemic has the potential of enslaving the world. What we're experiencing is so insidious and overwhelming. The question is, can enough people wake up to what's going on before we wind up like the proverbial frog in a pot of hot water? Well, there's a lot of uh, social pressure. Like if you're in a country where you're supposed to be 
uh, isolating at home unless you have an urgent need to go out. I mean, even if the police don't stop you and ask to see your papers, like, do you have, do you, have you run out of food? Do you need medicine? Are you going to the hospital? Like, wh what are the list of things that an ordinary person uh, can do? But there's a lot of pressure from ordinary people. Um, and I'm, sh I'm sure there's going to be a lot of, like, Stasi-like tattling on your neighbors. You know, I'm sure my neighbor is quarantined and I saw him go out for a run last night, right? That kind of stuff. Well, we have the police here in uh, uh, Greensboro uh, formally, officially today at 5 p.m. Our time, we, it's everybody has to follow the rules, have to stay in their house, and they can only go out on very for very specific reasons. And if they're out with people, they have to stay at least six feet away from each other. And uh, the thing that astounds me is how readily people uh, will do this stuff without asking questions. It's just like sheep just following the leader, you know? Well, I think we've been brought up <clears throat> for decades being taught that medicine is controlled by experts and they tell us with authority what's right. You know, you need to get this drug, you need to get this vaccine, whatever. And we've been taught to just believe them. And, and experts don't generally stand up and say, you know, I, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to say this and here's my source for that information. Experts will say a lot of things that if you know the subject, you might realize that they're not all true. Um, but they are not ever pressed uh, by the journalists to say, well, you know, there's papers that say the exact opposite to what you're saying. So how, how confident are you in this? Yeah, that's, that's a sad situation. It's uh, pervasive now, certainly in what's called the mainstream uh, media. But, uh, you know, I want to direct people before I forget about it to your uh, Alberta Reappraising Aid Society uh, website where you put on a lot of things here this month. And one of the, to me, one of the most important things on this uh, coronavirus stuff is the, the little article of March 26, where 12 experts uh, questioned the coronavirus panic. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, the, I, I haven't actually finished every one of those experts, but I really, I send that link to a lot of people who've been asking me things, then go to your, uh, website and probably a lot of other places. And I certainly want to encourage people to go there. You've got a wealth of uh, material on there, including article, I believe, that you wrote. I guess that's on there, too. Yes, yes, that's on there, too. Which uh, is a very good summary and explanation. Of right, and, and it's really important, uh, because I don't have a PhD or MD, it's really important that there are other people, you know, with all the credentials you could want. I, I mean, you said experts, but I mean, they, these 12 people, they're they're medical experts, MDs, or, or pr probably some scientific medical experts as well. They're all um, they're all like mature, uh, retired in some cases, so they have literally decades of experience. It's not like they're new med students who just walked out of med school and and have their heads full of ideas that may be proven wrong in the future. These are people with years of experience with pneumonia and influenza and you know, uh, fears of epidemics and things like that. They're not, they're not people just randomly saying stuff. No, and I really encourage people to go, uh, go to them. There are a variety of people in there too, like this John Yonidas. He's been um, 
publishing things for years now, I guess maybe even a couple of decades on the, the, how, the poor quality of scientific data, and you just can't really trust and believe a lot of it, you know? And he's, he's very critical of how the data are being misused uh, with this coronavirus thing. And, uh, but like you said, these other people from their own mm -hmm. perspectives, from uh, clinicians, from uh, people who are experts in upper respiratory, lower res respiratory diseases, you know, they've seen, they, they give you a perspective which is lacking. Right, uh, right. I mean, I think these uh, public health officials, like, you know, Canada right now is not run by our prime minister, but it's, it's run by, uh, you know, a woman named Teresa Tam, who, who probably has a PhD in, in public health, and they get full of propaganda about pandemics and what to do. And, and I think for a long time, there's been this dream that you can become a hero by taking a new virus, encircling it with all the techniques you have, social isolation, rapid testing, quarantine, all of those things. And then you can, once you've encircled it, you can destroy it. And once you've destroyed it, you become the hero. But what they're finding out in practice is that maybe if the test has false positives, this is a never-ending um, battle. Who was the Greek god? Sisyphus. You know, he was condemned to push this rock uphill. And every time he got near the top of the hill, the rock would roll back down to the bottom. And he had to start again. And, and that seems to be what we're, we're on right now. Yeah, I, I know it, it. It does. And you mentioned, uh, I think, earlier about false positives. Just uh, four days ago, March 23rd, a study published in the Chinese Journal of Epidemiology showed that eight out of 10 people who tested positive for this new coronavirus are not actually infected. Did you know they retracted that article? Yeah, I heard that it had been. <laughs> but guess what? The Lancet just uh, today or yesterday, I forget when it came out, I've got it. They cite that very article. Well, I read it. I actually uh, translated into Chinese with a friend, uh, for, into English from Chinese with a friend. The, yeah. the article is a simple mathematical analysis. If there's a certain prevalence of a disease and the test kits have a certain accuracy, if you test a low-risk population, you will get a high rate of false positives, and that's a mathematical certainty. This is, this is not a new analysis. This is you know, a traditional a, a calculation of positive predictive value. You're, it's very clear. I, I, I'm very experienced in, in all those statistics. I had to be with the cancer, cancer mm -hmm, statistics mm -hmm. I work on. There's just as clear, and uh, yeah, there wasn't anything in there that looked phony or, or smelled phony to me. The only thing that, that anybody could really have a, a, a complaint about is, is if it turned out that some of the stuff they were saying was not true. Like now, the assumptions, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, or, or even the data or whatever, but, but not the procedures that they were doing. And if the numbers were correct that were going into their calculations, then the numbers are correct coming out of it. And in the, in the body of the paper, they actually do what they call a sensitivity analysis. So they changed, they changed the assumptions over a wide range. And, yeah. and even with the most optimistic assumptions, they could not get false positives below 40%, which is uh, still a problem. Today, somebody yeah. told me, um, somebody made me think about a, a problem with false positives. Because a lot of people will say, okay, you got a false positive, you, you get told to stay home for 10 or 14 days. Not a big deal. What harm does that do, right? It, it, it's, yeah. We got to do it to save the world. But um, the, uh, the National Health Service, for example, in England, 
is struggling with a massive number of doctors and nurses who are forced to stay home in quarantine. So the, this is backfiring on the on the own medical system. If a lot of those doctors and nurses are actually false positives, then they're unnecessarily being forced to stay home, and the pressure on the remaining personnel is artificial. Well, that, I, I dealt with this issue of false positives with cancer. It's not a trivial thing. If you have what is perceived to be a lethal disease like this new coronavirus, which it really is minimally uh, lethal at all, at best, mm -hmm. uh, or, or uh, a much more lethal disease like cancer, uh, a false positive will uh, lead to months or years of anxiety and uncertainty in the person that had the false positive, because how do they know it was false positive? For all they know, it was a true positive. And, and, and potentially uh, highly toxic treatments. That's absolutely true. False positives can lead to very dangerous treatments, and I don't even care what the disease is. If you, if you give a lot of people, I mean, there's no such thing as a safe drug. There's just mm -hmm. regions of safety. And, but if you start treating lots of people, especially like cancer patients, with, uh, with these very, very toxic and uh, dangerous drugs, you're going to harm a lot more people than you help. Right. One of the other signatories, or not signatories, one of the other people in this list of 12 um, experts was Peter Gotchi, who I actually interviewed on the show a couple of times. And I, I learned about him <clears throat> because of his work on mammography back in the, starting in the 90s, I think. <clears throat> he, he analyzed the statistics and showed that the dangers of mammography, which in, include things like psychological distress and unnecessary treatment, were actually at least as harmful as the benefits of finding some cases of cancer. So that when you actually look at the overall death rate from breast cancer, uh, pardon me, if you, the overall death rate, um, it's not changed by mammography. There's, there's no evidence of benefit. That's right. I know. I know that. Uh, I even have that in my book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Another story. <laughs> but, you know, we just assume that you know, it's better to test, it's better to treat. And, and I think this is going on with, um, like, uh, you're an expert in protease inhibitors, and the Chinese just published a paper saying that uh, lopinavir and ritonavir, which are both AIDS protease inhibitors, did not work on the coronavirus. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but there are no drugs that are specific for the coronavirus. No. So when a doctor chooses to use an unproven drug, it's kind of a sign of desperation, right? It, they really feel they have no other choice. Yeah, I know. They were using these uh, malaria parasite drugs. Mefloquine, I believe it was. and uh, Chloroquine. Not Chlor mefloquine, uh, thank goodness, okay, but chlor maybe. <laughs> chloroquine is even more toxic than mefloquine. Uh, yeah, and uh, those are parasites. And... Parasites are what I call, uh, uh, like, they can uh, see it's from malaria, a malarial parasite. And those are very toxic drugs. And they're not, they're not viruses. You know, they're much, much more um, uh, advanced organisms, which means that those drugs are going to be toxic to the people that they give them to. I, I think all they have for these drugs is they have some test tube experiments to show that um, you know, this RNA that they're, they're um, hung up on is found at lesser levels after this drug. So the, the drug is killing whatever's making this RNA or whatever's replicating the RNA. 
um, that's not terribly comforting because it certainly doesn't say it's safe in humans. And it really, I mean, a lot of test tube uh, experiments with drugs don't pan out in, uh, in practice. Oh, I have a question for you. Uh, they were uh, doing like their viral load, their PCR test on these humans that they gave the chloroquine to. Is that is that what you're saying? Um, well, I think it was just a test tube experiment. So oh. they, they probably added some, uh, you know, cells from a nasal swab into a cell culture. And then they added chloroquine. And then they had less RNA, something oh, like that. It was cell culture then. All right. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I, I don't. They've The only thing I've seen for these drugs is like, in the first case in the United States, I think they used the Ebola drug remdesivir, and they said, oh, it was a positive experience, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, how do you tell from one case? Like, what would have happened if you had treated this patient as if he didn't have the coronavirus, just normally? Right. Would that have been a better outcome? You, you can't tell from one case. Uh, no, a, a, a single trial and a single individual is absolutely meaningless in biology. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so let's talk about this test because there was a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine and it, it said they'd found this unique um, RNA, which was a coronavirus, and it was different than any previous coronavirus, and that was therefore the cause of the illness in the, in the patient from which they'd taken samples, or, or maybe several patients, not a lot. So... I, I think people need to understand a little bit about the PCR test. And the first thing I think is important is the PCR test only works on DNA, not RNA, correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can convert RNA into DNA so that you can use it. Uh, so, right. Uh, yeah, right. But but the actual amplification, actual PCR is done on DNA. Right, and, and that's important because people are talking about RNA and then they're talking about DNA. The test itself, the PCR, it's not a test, the PCR machine is replicating DNA, which is kind of a complementary image of the RNA that they're interested in. That's right. Um, and uh, like the PCR, I mean, you, you know more about this, so correct me on anything I say that's wrong. PCR was invented by Kerry Mullis. He got the Nobel Prize in 1993 for chemistry. It was a manufacturing technique to take a strand of DNA in the morning and produce billions within a few hours. It, it was not intended as, a, intended as a testing technique. And Kerry Mullis was a little bit of an uh, iconoclast. Is that the right word? That, that's, yeah, that's, he was certainly an iconoclast, no doubt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he wrote the foreword for Peter Duisberg's 1996 book, Inventing the AIDS Virus, that questioned whether HIV caused AIDS, which is a pretty um, bold thing for, you know, an establishment biochemist uh, to do, right? Not, yeah, yeah, it was. It cost him dearly for doing it. <laughs> yes. I, 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 that's an important point because we like to think we live in a scientific society, but when scientists are scared to profess an opinion because it could destroy their career, you, you cannot perform science under those circumstances not not really i mean you can not not really imagine to science you, you you know you have this thing over your head the whole time what you can say what you can't say it's self-censoring uh, all the professions now unfortunately for some decades now have been suffering from severe uh self-censoring uh jeff schmidt wrote a book about it called 
um, Disciplined Minds, which I encourage people to read if they're interested in what's happened to uh, legitimacy and veracity in science. Uh, it'll be made pretty clear to you once you read that book. Yes. Well, going back to the PCR um, uh, algorithm, I mean, let's talk about it as a manufacturing technique. So you, you, you put in the, the, the DNA, um, you split the DNA into two, right? Two complementary strands. Right. Yeah. And then you attach primers to it. Is that correct? You do yeah, this a little primer or, you know, little uh, segments of complementary DNA, like up to maybe 20 nucleotides or something like that. Right. And those mark the beginning and the end of the section that you want to duplicate. That's right. You've got about, in human genome, you've got, what, uh, about 3 billion nucleotides, something like that. And uh, in the virus, you have, um, I think, uh, this virus is one of the largest. You have about 30,000 mm -hmm. nucleotides versus the human genome of about 3 billion. And, uh, but even of those um, uh, 30,000 nucleotides in this coronavirus genome, you're only looking at a few hundred, maybe. Yes, a yes. Tiny, tiny fraction of the of the genes in the coronavirus thing, and the coronaviruses, like all viruses, mutate like mad. And a coronavirus is an RNA virus, and they mutate the worst of all. You know, very, very. Uh, every time they they divide, they're mutating. So there, these RNA viruses are very difficult, even for the PCR to be very reliable on because of all that mutating going on. And uh, it means you have to have a different kind, a different primer for just about every individual. If you were to uh, uh, go out there for those, those places on the RNA or the DNA that are changing all the time and the mm -hmm. whole thing is changing. So what they do is uh, with these viruses, especially with the RNA viruses, they go to what's called what what are perceived to be the most stable regions in the RNA or the DNA. Mm -hmm. Those most stable regions have happen to be those segments that are common to all viruses of that family. And this right. new coronavirus is a member of the coronaviridae, the family of coronaviruses, five or six of them, something like that in there. They all share those same common regions. So the PCR that you develop by looking at those regions, you can easily detect the class of virus that, you, that you're talking about, but not the the particular uh, uh, individual, I'm sorry, the family of virus, but you can't detect which type of uh, that specific virus is it. Was it SARS? Was it the cold virus? Was it this new, new one or whatever? You can't do that with the standard PCR. It's just, just not possible. So what people are doing is, uh, I saw most recently, since that's a really big problem and they got all these false positives with it and everything, they'll do uh, a routine screen or test with the standard, uh, you know, the standard coronavirus PCR, but they have to confirm it with a separate and different PCR test, mm -hmm. not person, because they don't know what they're really looking at. And the hope is now they use these uh, RNA regions that are different in this virus than the other coronaviruses, 
and they use little primers for those regions. Now remember, those regions are highly variable. They're changing all the time. Right. And then, and then they'll do PCR on those regions to say, aha, we see those regions. Right. So now we know it's, a, it's in the coronavirus family. Uh, now, and if with the second one confirms it and says, aha, it looks like we've got the one that we want. The problem with that is, is that those things are so unstable that, that they have to rely on as many as at, le at least two of those so-called specific regions of PCR, you know, two different regions in the, this, this uh, specific coronavirus. And, and I think they say you have to have positive on two of them before you can really uh, say it is what you think it is. If you only have positive in one of them, you can't say that. And that could change, too. And well, I mean, another thing that they that they found is that um, the if they take multiple samples, the, the the PCR test is often negative on the majority of the samples. Like there's there's one paper that was looking at a family cluster, and in the first person that they declared positive, only three out of eleven tests were positive. They they did eleven PCR tests, yeah, and yeah. three were positive, and they said, oh, this guy's infected. Well, there's a reason why a lot of the places around the world have developed their own PCR tests for this new coronavirus. They don't accept the WHO test. They don't accept the CDC test. They develop their own. There's got to be a reason why everybody is developing their own tests, and the reason is none of them are reliable. Right. But, I mean, I think there's a more fundamental problem. I mean, in the, in the New England Journal Medicine article, there were a couple of electron micrographs. How do we know that the particles that are in those photographs are not exosomes or microvesicles or ectosomes or other endogenous particles and how do we know that the that the RNA in those particles if there is indeed RNA in those particles matches what they think comes from the virus yeah that's that, that's what you pick up on I picked up on something a little bit different uh, mm -hmm. That uh, we're talking, you and I looked at the same images, so so that readers know that that's what we were looking. We're talking about the same images, but um, that I'm most concerned that those uh, viral particles that they're looking at there uh, were in cell culture and not in primary tissue. In other words, we weren't looking at the virus in a human tissue. We we were could it is likely uh, if you look look at the methods section of that paper that it was. They were cultured. They cultured the virus in cells, and then they did the right. EM on those cells. Uh, and that magnified picture of that virus certainly looked like a belonged to the coronavirus family to me. I'm no expert, but I've had some experience with this EM stuff, uh, with HIV and these other other viruses, and it sure sure looked like it was in the family of coronaviruses. But then the low, the relatively low magnification picture. Uh, uh, was inside the cell. You were looking clearly at viral particles inside a cell. The question is, was it a cell in cell culture or was it a cell in the human tissue? And that is where I, you know, it's so crucial. This, we're talking about something of, of uh, global proportions of magnitude right. here. It's going to affect the whole globe. They need to be a little bit more careful uh, and, and, and such that Everybody, at least all the scientists that would, you know, agree, haha, they did a good job. We understand what they, they did and it makes sense. It was very, very weak you, mm. you know, on that. On that. So I, there, to me, there's nothing trustworthy about what is in, the, in print about this new virus and this 
uh, alleged pandemic yet. There's nothing really reliable that, that you can say, aha, yeah, I trust it. Okay, so um, with this uh, PCR, um, another issue is, is PCR is, is cyclical. At every step, if you're trying to manufacture DNA, you end up with approximately twice as much as the previous step, which is why it's a great manufacturing technique. Um, but uh, so if you're using it as a test, you're saying, okay, well, we have a tiny amount, you know, of this RNA to start with, and we're going to see how many cycles it takes before we can actually see enough DNA. And they do this by attaching fluorescent probes that glow uh, to the DNA, and then you can see how much light is coming out. Uh, so how accurate is the measuring of light to determine how much DNA you have? Well, that's fairly, uh, they use this uh, uh, flor green fluorescent protein. Mm -hmm. tip. There's also a red one that they can use. And those are very standard techniques. I don't have a problem with uh, with uh, detection with these probes. They're pretty sensitive. Uh, that uh, to me, the, the this the, the problems with this whole approach are much more serious and more fundamental mm -hmm. than uh, than whether or not you can see a, one of these colors and get the quant quantification down right. Um, the people have to understand that doing a PCR test is not a test for a virus. It's a test for segments of nucleic acid that may or may not be attached to a virus. Mm -hmm. you, People are assuming, uh, and, and to the detriment of the world, that what they're detecting with this PCR is actually detecting virus in human beings. That has never, ever been demonstrated. I just got an email just before you uh, we started this conversation from John Rappaport. He sent me something to look at uh, and comment on, and it was another one of these Chinese studies, and I got interested in it when they were they were confirming uh, some of their tests with uh, uh, electron micro, uh, microscopy. Uh, and so I immediately looked up this little article that he sent me, and it was just a regular, like a, a news article. I couldn't find any papers or anything. I found the, the Australian, uh, it was Australian, not Chinese, it was Australia. And um, I looked up some, tried to find some publications, articles, couldn't find anything on it, because that's how you do it. Uh, you you if you really want to confirm, especially something as important as this new uh, alleged uh, pandemic, uh, you need to use the gold standard, something that no scientist in his right mind would say, wait a minute now, that's not trustworthy. At some point, you have to stop and say, well, we've reached the gold standard. The acknowledged gold standard in, de in detecting and diagnosing virus infections is electron microscopy. That's why I got so excited mm. about because you can actually see a picture of this little critter in human samples, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, uh, so that has never been done. There, I've not seen any uh, correlation at all anywhere in the literature between these PCR uh, tests for viral detection with uh, electron microscopy or even viral culturing, which is which is legitimate too. If you can directly culture a virus. Uh, from a tissue and magnify it that way. That that's a very good uh, a, a very good method as well. And then you could do electron microscopy on those things. There are uh, a number of viruses where this has been done. 
where legitimately people have correlated electron microscopy uh, uh, analysis and pictures and images and counting with a, a viral load uh, analysis on the same virus. The places where this has never been done is HIV. HIV has never been, the presence of HIV has never been correlated or confirmed with electron microscopy with any other method. The same is true with hepatitis C and, and also now with this new coronavirus. And I think that is a huge, huge breach of scientific uh, integrity, a certainly problem that we're doing right now, uh, where that hasn't been done. I think, uh, I think that uh, scientists love PCR because it's, it's about the only digital technique or, or genetics are the only digital information in biology, uh, DNA and RNA. And I, I think people love it for that reason. And I think they're moving to a world where PCR is the only technique that you use. You, you find RNA or DNA, you don't need to find particles. You don't need to um, you know, show that it's, it's pathogenic. You don't need to do anything. You just need to find a unique string of RNA or DNA and you, you've got yourself a new virus and you've got yourself publications and fame and glory and everything. I tell you something that uh, a lot of folks, I'm sure, don't know anything about. Uh, there's this professor uh, Biniak in, uh, actually, he's in uh, Winnipeg, uh, one of your countrymen, and uh, I've been in contact with him when viral forensics existed, uh, and he, uh, uh, his laboratory there in Winnipeg is Canadian National. What's it called? It's the Canadian National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. Yeah, it's it's the biggest lab in Canada, I think, or the most prestigious uh, virology lab in, in Canada. That's where Frank Plummer worked, who um, recently passed away. Okay, in 2015, uh, they developed um, a mobile biosafety electron microscope, microscopy system, uh, that can uh, easily detect as few as 100 viral particles in a sample. A hundred, that's, uh -huh. that's better than PCR. Uh -huh. And and uh, one of its intended uses is the rapid identification of bioterrorism agents. Uh -huh. uh, so far, I've been trying to get in contact with him about this, but I haven't been able to. I was going to. I was going to ask him, uh, you know, if they, if he knows of anybody who's uh, used his um, uh, mobile system to detect uh, coronavirus and uh, spew them in other samples of people in Canada with uh, this coronavirus stuff. It would certainly, I think you you should try to look into that. It's your countryman, maybe you have access. Although I have talked to him, he's a fine fellow. I just can't get him for this before I, the interview. There, there's like a firewall around these people and they know, they know people who are dangerous and they don't want to talk to them. Uh, another issue I wanted to talk about is that uh, the, the PC, PCR used as a test is not binary. It's not naturally positive or negative. And what they're doing is they, they cycle a certain number of times, and if they don't get enough fluorescence or some other measure of how much DNA they have, by a certain number of cycles, they stop and say it's negative. Um, and I only have two papers that, that describe this limit, and they both have different limits. I think one is 36, one is 37. Uh, but the other problem is, in one of those papers, they show graphs of daily coronavirus tests for 18 patients. And in the majority of cases, people went from positive, which, you know, most people say is infected, 
to negative, uninfected, and then back to positive again, and sometimes uh, two or three times. Yeah, well, it just shows they're not reliable. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, the thing I found about those graphs is they were thrown into the supplementary data of the paper, which is, which is the place you throw stuff uh, where nobody ever reads it. Because, you know, when you download the paper, it's not part of the paper. You have to actually ask for the supplementary information separately. And I don't think they realized the significance of these graphs. I th just thought they thought, well, these are kind of interesting. We'll, we'll just throw them in. Um, not too important. But they called the whole test process into question. Well, there are so many. Uh, David uh, Crow, I should keep, keep uh, yeah. remembering who we're talking to. Uh, there are... Uh, so many problems with this whole thing. I mean, not just with the test, but I mean, with every aspect, you know, I can't think of one honest thing that they're doing right now with this whole scenario. Maybe they are doing some, some things that make sense, but I, nothing pops to my mind right now. Uh, they're scaring the whole world to death. That's one thing. And they're destroying yep. the economy of the planet and the, What's going on globally with all shutting down everything is going to be far worse than any virus on this planet, on the consequences to human beings. Uh, it's going to be millions of people that are going to die because they can't afford to feed themselves. Well, uh, I, I, I mean, I've read so many things. I have a, a friend who's, who's got a relative who, who needs leg surgery and, and may, if it's delayed too long, may lose his leg. But it's not emergency surgery, so elective surgery canceled. Apparently, in England, doctors are not seeing mental health patients. Uh, you know, what's the consequences of that? Um, I think the most worrisome thing in England, and I think other places, is the advice that if you're sick, you should stay at home and self-quarantine and not go to emergency. And I think this is leading to... Uh, people staying at home until their pneumonia is severe enough that they got to go to emergency. And then they arrive and they're in rotten shape. Whereas if they'd gone three, four, five days ago, they, they would have been much more salvageable. So ba basically the world's gone nuts. Normal logic and rationality are turned on its head. Well, you know? I, I don't think we had, we've had normal logic and rationality for a long time. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, read, I, I have a Canadian paper that I, I just canceled because I just can't stand it anymore. But their coverage of, of healthcare is if big pharma produces it, it's good. And anybody who objects, like let's say there's people who say my son was injured by a vaccination, they're crazy people. Don't listen to these crazy people. They're all nuts. Listen to the spokespeople for big pharma. You know, even though you don't actually realize that they're, they're these people. I mean, I think we've been listening to mostly propaganda on, on medicine for a long time. And now it's really coming to haunt us because we, the politicians and the journalists and, and ordinary people have learned absolute faith in these priests of medical science. Well, uh, the, this... They're taking advantage, you know, the, the, the powers that be, the global financiers are taking advantage of this gullibility or religious faith in the healthcare system uh, to uh, basically take over the world. And, and they're succeeding. So it's not just a health issue. Health issue is just one part of it.
It's what's going to be uh, the consequences, like the global economy is just going down the tubes. Uh, well, I mean, the way I, I think about it is that if, if you're somebody with a lot of capital, then after this is over, there's going to be a lot of businesses that were healthy six months ago that are now on life support, and you can just swoop in and get them for 10 cents on the dollar. Um, you know, so independent businesses that have built up a good business over maybe 10 or 20 years are just going to be utterly destroyed and big money is going to come in and take them all over. Yeah, but it's going to be, it's going to be, just, I don't even care about that. It's still going to be a lot. I mean, I do care about that, but there's going to be a lot of devastation besides mm -hmm. you know, millions of people. There are probably going to be millions of people that die as a consequence of the economic downturn that's on the way. I've seen estimates. This uh, one guy projects that the, the market's going to collapse down and probably stabilize around U.S. market Dow Jones at around six thousand, you know, from a, a high of around almost thirty thousand, wasn't it? Something like that, twenty nine thousand or something. Yeah. So I mean, people's you, retirement savings are going to be utterly destroyed. Yeah, I know, and it'll be. And the guy predicts a bigger because it's a just hugely global problem. It'll be bigger than the uh, nineteen twenty nine crash. And, yeah. uh, you know, that, that, believe me, is going to be much, much worse than a silly virus, a silly cold virus. Well, except that the silly cold virus got us here, um, or, you know, not directly, but our belief in it got us here. You, you said, um, we are in the midst of a plague of testing, not a plague of actual disease. A viral plague or pandemic can be uh, created simply by employing a meaningless test. That's right. um, the pharmaceutical industry, which I worked for for 20 years, has made tens of billions of dollars directly from bogus tests and indirectly from the drugs to treat the diseases diagnosed with those tests. Yep, that's uh, true. My feeling is that the one obvious fact that politicians don't seem to be able to wrap their heads around is if you do more tests, you will get more cases. And this can go on. The exponential growth in tests in, in cases, to me, is an exponential grow, growth in testing. Yeah, and, and makes huge profits, billions of dollars. <laughs> and and the, only way, the only way out of it is to somehow be a lot more selective in who you're testing. And if you test less, or you test people who are less likely to be positive, then you can turn the curve around. But what they won't look at is like all these people saying, we need to have more tests, we need to have more tests. If you have more tests, you're gonna get more cases. Like you're never gonna end this quote pandemic if you keep testing. Yeah, well, it'll end, but I, I, I don't know how it'll end. <laughs> it's, it's like we're in, we're in a horror movie and, and we know there's no happy ending, but we, we still are trying to figure out what the ending's gonna be. <laughs> it, really, it really is a horror movie, I swear it is. Yeah, I, I, I can't picture the ending either. I can't picture how it's going. I just know it's going to be a lot worse before it gets better, if it does get better. Yes. Um, one of the other major biotechniques, biotech te techniques is um, sequencing. And the, the purpose of that is to determine the sequence of the, the beads on the DNA chain, the nucleotides. And that's been around, I think, since the 70s. Um, there ha has been some talk about sequencing after you do the PCR because if you use the PCR and you don't sequence, you don't really know what you've got, do you? You, you know you generated a bunch of RNA. 
Yeah, some people are sequencing the whole viral genome I've seen recently for what good that is. Well, I think in some cases they're sequencing after testing. Yes, absolutely right. Yes. But and then I guess they they look at everybody's got a slightly different genome and uh, I I guess they think that's that's important. But basically between the probes you have no control over what gets replicated, right? If if a strand of DNA matches the two probes, then it will replicate whatever's in between them. It it doesn't care. That's right. So, you know, we we probably don't really know if if what's being replicated for all of these patients, uh, all of these positive tests is is really the same thing. We have to trust that. Well, a lot of people don't trust it. Like I just said, a lot of countries in the world are going on their own because they don't trust the the, the test from the WHO or the CDC. So I don't know who's doing the trusting. Well, none of these tests are more than about two months old. And, and you know, I know we live in this, have, have since like the 60s or something, lived with this myth that the earth, is, that the that society is going faster and faster and faster. I mean, I, I've read this so many times. You know, look how it took years to get the television into 50% of families, but cell phones made it in half the time, right? Like everything is faster and faster and faster, but fast is not always good. And, and if you're developing a test or a drug or a vaccine, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of steps that are time consuming that you really should go through. L- like for example, what about testing this test on uh, frozen samples? You know, I'm sure there's millions of frozen nasal swabs in, um, you know, in research facilities around the world. And, and if a significant percentage of those tested positive, that would shatter this belief that it's a new virus. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, but who's going to do that? Why would anybody even? You're, you're, you're posing a, a question in a different scenario, in a world that's not nutty. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm trying to be <laughs> rational and say what we should do. I mean, I know we live in a, a world where everything that is done is to solidify the viral paradigm, and nothing is done to question it. I, I understand that, but we should be taking the time to say, okay, we think we have a new virus. If we have a new virus, then old specimens will not test positive. And we should do a blinded test where we mix, you know, new nasal samples from people we think are infected with 10-year-old frozen nasal samples, and we should see if there's any amount of positive testing in old samples. And if there is, we've got to say, okay, well, our hypothesis was obviously false. Oh, there will be. There absolutely will be. There's no question about that because it's looking at the, f- the family of coronaviruses primarily, and everybody's got a coronavirus in them somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I suspect there would be a fairly high rate. And then, you know, the whole, this, this whole thing is actually reliant on this test because if you took the test away, there would be no more cases. Same thing with HIV. Yes, Yes, it's, it's uh, the first Thank line I wrote in my paper. We have an epidemic of testing, right. not an epidemic of viruses. That's right. HCV is the same way. This, this whole scenario, you understand, has been in the making for, since the 80s. You, you know, this is the latest, just the latest thing and the most effective use of a bogus test. Yes. Uh, 
you, you know, so that there's there's no motivation to change. There's no motivation to do to do what you advocate. Uh, you know, if the 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 shoulds, or the what ifs, or the the what, why don't you do this sort of thing on my list is, where's the skepticism? Except for those twelve scientists that we were talking about, those twelve experts. Uh, where, where are the journalists that are skeptical journalists? The ones uh, that now, I mean, now you are talking crazy talk. Uh -huh. Skepti See, skeptical. I, I totally agree ske with you. I, skeptical I journalists. <laughs> like, how do you get paid as a journalist if you're skeptical of of big pharma and big medicine, right? Like, how do you get paid as a scientist if you're skeptical? <laughs> of your funding agent and your bosses and all that kind of stuff too. And, and how do you survive as a politician if you confront? Uh, Unless you're Donald Trump, who to some extent, I think through his ego, has uh, resisted. You know, he just he just hates being told uh, that somebody's smarter than him. And, and I think at this moment in time, that's what we need. I, I don't think Trump knows what he's doing. He's just being well, he Trump. Go but ahead, I, I'm sorry. sure if we had Democrats in charge, like Biden or Bernie Sanders, it would be, we'd be doing millions. Well, you in the United States would be doing millions of testing tests, and you know you'd be getting one to five percent positive, and and the world would be falling apart much worse than it is now. Yeah, that's possible. I agree with you on that. Uh, I tell you what, I uh, and the people are going to be listening to this program. They say, why are we wasting our time talking about something that's hopeless? Well, to me, the whole point of us having this conversation is taking it out of the hands of those people in charge and letting the people that listen to your podcast uh, uh, get involved in some of this stuff and think about what they can do and also uh, resist. We have to resist. Uh, one of the things that concerned me about this whole thing is, like I said before, the Nazi Germany before the war, where people just quietly... Uh, allowed themselves to be enslaved. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we should go quietly into that good night, you know? No, so I, I, hope I, I think there's a lot. I mean, I think people need to do some reading, you know, read about the 12 scientists. I hope people read my paper on the coronavirus. Read and think until, you know, you're, you're pretty sure you know what your belief is. I mean, I, I don't need to encourage you to read the propaganda because it's pretty hard to avoid that. Um, and and then I guess just talk to people, um, you know, circulate that article, you know, to to people who are who are dogmatic and this is a viral tragedy, circulate that and point out that these are twelve highly experienced medical scientific people. Uh, you know, it, it's it's like everybody has a role to play, and if there's enough pushback, change will happen. And and it only happens if everybody who's concerned actually says something and does something. And, and you know, people who have connections with politicians or journalists need to tell them that that they're highly dissatisfied. I mean, they don't need to. This is I'm not. I don't want to tell you what to do. But if you feel like me, my feeling is if I knew any journalists, I would be very angry at them and tell them that they're destroying the economy because they're afraid to confront medical scientists, uh, medical officials, on the flaws in this whole theory. Yeah, well, I've sent, uh, I sent a little email to the county commissioners here in uh, Guilford County today, uh, urging them to, I, I sent the link to those 12 experts that are questioning the coronavirus right. thing. 
probably never hear anything back from them. But, you know, any of this conversation that you're talking about with uh, other people, it's going to have to be done from your home. <laughs> uh, yes. You we're, all, it's all, we're all like prisoners that are sentenced to our house. Yes, house arrest. Well, we've been talking for quite a while, and it, it's an invigorating conversation. It's it's so great to to like. I think we're having a conversation of, about what should be, and and not what is. You know, in terms of how should science be done, and and admitting that science is a lot messier uh, than this simple binary. I mean, the fact that the test is positive or negative, when in reality it's not. That's sort of emblematic of this is modern science, you know, black and white, but the reality is a spectrum of gray or, or green in this case, fluorescent green. <laughs> uh, so is there one more thing? Is there something else you'd like to get out that you didn't uh, yet no, in this discussion? Not in the time allotted. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure we could go on for a couple more days. Um getting more and more worked up about this. Uh, I yeah, mean, I, there's aspects of this that um, make me emotional, you know, like people, people who, are, who live alone, who have, you know, maybe one or two things in a week that give them some joy and purpose, whether it's going to bingo or going down to the bar, like these trivial things that ordinary people do to give some meaning to their life, to be with friends, to be with like-minded people, whatever. When that's taken away from these people, what's it going to do to their mental state? To depression, suicide, drug abuse, uh, alcohol abuse, and uh, domestic abuse. You know, I just see a lot of consequences that, that we're just completely glossing over. Think about the lost trust and faith in our system. Well, maybe that's a good thing. I think it's a very good thing. I, that's <laughs> yes. what I hope people wake up to, you know? Uh, uh, yes. It, it, I think the system is, is broken, and uh, the system does not yet realize it. The, the people who still have jobs, the journalists, the politicians, the medical staff, um, you know, are not feeling the pain of some guy who worked in a factory, had a good job, has now lost his job, has no idea whether he's going to get back again at the end, you know, is, is worried about his, um, his family, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there, there must be a lot of people going through incredible emotional trauma because they have no idea yeah. what the future is going to hold for them. I don't either, man. And, and yeah. I know what's going on, more or less. Yes. You and I okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, Crow. It's always good, man. Okay. Thanks, Raz. Bye-bye. Right, see you. Bye. And now for a little bit of feedback regarding coronavirus podcasts and articles. Sandra, thank you for another wonderful article. Tony, by email, I'm listening to your podcast on Green Med Info. I guess it got rebroadcast there. Thank you for sanity and truth. Alicia, thank you so much for your recent article, Does the Coronavirus Exist? Wow, I know this took you substantial time and effort to present, so I had to write to let you know it's greatly appreciated. I particularly enjoyed the audio version as many Lyme patients like me have a difficult time with the written word. Solihan by email. Thank you so much, David, for your amazing work. I have a scientific training and have constantly asked for answers 
Who designed the test for COVID-19? How do they work? Are they accurate? Are there false positives? Your paper answers all my questions. Eileen via email. David, thank you so much for your work. I came across you via GreenMedInfo and I'm really enjoying your talk. I agree with you and feel this is an experiment and oddly a certain person is so cocky about their personal immunity and has been so quiet from a certain country that it doesn't take a, a great stretch of the imagination to figure out that there is something likely more sinister than vats in China. Please keep doing what you're doing. Mitch, by email. First, let me say I appreciate the well-researched article on COVID-19 test accuracy. My question relates to the reported deaths in China. Why do you not? While you do not specifically address these, the inference is that they could have an iatrogenic etiology caused by the medical system. Be caused by environmental factors or be related to typical influenza morbidity. Would like to know your thinking at this time. I replied, we definitely don't have enough information to answer this. I think the Chinese are keeping good records. Maybe they will emerge later. First of all, I don't think there is any proof that there's a new disease or an unusual quantity of pre-existing symptoms. The panic started when a Chinese doctor stated that seven people in quarantine in his hospital was evidence of a new disease in a city of 10 million. It could easily have been food poisoning from the Huanan seafood market or just a coincidence that seven people with severe pneumonia showed up at the same time. We know that the Chinese were using several different antivirals and that those have fatal side effects in some cases, but we don't know who is getting one or more of the antivirals, why they're being prescribed, and so on. Well, that's all the time for feedback this week. We're running out of time, but there will be more later. Thanks. Thank you for listening to episode 249 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. Like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Commit the monthly donations of any amount to infectiousmyth on patreon.com or liberopay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.